It's a program of Jewish information, inspiration, motivation, and transformation. Here on the Gabrielle Sanders Show. Welcome again to another freshly baked edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. I am Gabrielle, your host for a fast-moving half hour of Jewish food for thought, word, and deed. In today's lineup, psychologist Lisa Aiken offers some much-needed insight on the art of communication. Then that much-in-demand motivator Charlie Harari shares a personal insight that makes us stop and think. Rabbi David Aaron serves up his next installment on making eye contact, that's the letter I, (laughs) as in you, and then move over Alka-Seltzer because the effervescent Rabbi Jonathan Rieti will help us understand the science of love. This and more on The Gabriel Sanders Show, coming to you from the heart of the world, Jerusalem. You're tuned to The Gabrielle Sanders Show, broadcasting on WNEW 102.7 FM HD3 New York and around the world on TalklineNetwork.com. Here is psychologist Dr. Lisa Aiken, bringing us a focus to improve the quality of our relationships, especially at home, speaking to us from Jerusalem in part one of a four-part series on communication skills. Dr. Lisa Aiken. Our Torah, or five books of Moses, tell us that God created the world with ten phrases, and that he revealed the Torah using ten statements, called the Ten Commandments. By using words constructively, The creator of the world made physical and spiritual worlds, and we can do the same. Judaism stresses the importance of good communication and meaningful use of speech. For example, the third commandment tells us not to take God's name in vain. This means that we should not swear using God's name to say something that is obvious, such as using his name to insist that a rock is a rock. While this encourages us to revere God, It also teaches us not to trivialize our power of speech. God gave us this faculty so that we would use it productively and not devalue it and ourselves by gossiping, lying, and hurting other people's feelings. Bringing peace between people is so important that we, so to speak, enjoy the interest from it in this world, but its principal reward remains for us to enjoy in the world to come. The sage Hillel reinforced this idea by saying that the essence of Judaism is not to do to others what is hateful to us. The fact that something is true does not give us liberty to say it. We can potentially violate 14 positive commandments and 17 negative commandments in the Torah by saying derogatory things about people, even if what we say is true. Words can hurt other people's feelings or damage their reputations, and it can focus us on people's shortcomings instead of on their positive qualities. The secular society we live in used to tell people to do and feel what comes naturally. I remember the lines from when I was a teenager, If it feels good, do it. And don't keep your feelings in, share them. These are excellent ways to ruin relationships. No one wants to be assaulted by someone else's anger. We can devastate people by telling them how we feel before considering the damage and hurt we might cause them. The medieval Jewish philosopher Ibn Gavirol expressed this by saying, When the roots of love are deeply set in the heart, its branches manifest themselves on the tongue. The opposite, of course, is also true. Most of us want others to treat us with tact and diplomacy, and we may even do this with strangers. 
But it is easy to become so familiar with some people, especially with their family members, that we stop being considerate with them. No one appreciates brutal comments, even if what is said is true. Anything worth expressing should be tactfully censored first. God modeled to us the importance of measuring our words by carefully choosing every word in the Torah. For example, before bringing the great flood, He told Noah to take quote, seven animals of every species that is clean, which means it was fit for sacrifice, and two of every species that is not clean. God could have been more succinct by calling the latter species unclean, but He used three extra Hebrew words. To express the same idea, he did this to teach us to go out of our way to use refined language, even if coarser language feels more natural. Good communication should feel unnatural because it requires us to engage our brains before expressing our thoughts or our feelings. We must first consider how we will be heard before deciding if we should say something. Then we must decide how and when to say it. This means that we have to repeatedly stop and think before speaking, instead of impulsively stating what we feel. The goal of personal communication is to enhance a relationship, not to be brutally honest and truthful. The Talmudic sages discuss the limits of honesty at someone else's expense by posing the following scenario: It is customary for guests at a Jewish wedding to sing, "This is how we dance in front of a beautiful and gracious bride." But what if the bride is ugly? Should the guests lie and say the standard words anyway? The sage Hillel's disciples ruled that some truths are relative or subjective, and that diplomacy, not honesty, is the best policy. A groom thinks that his bride is beautiful and also gracious, so we can describe reality as he sees it, even if we don't share his perceptions. Absolute truth here is less important than telling the newlyweds what they need to hear. There is not always one. And only one true way to see a situation. That is why two people often have different views of the so-called truth. A couple with a marital problem went to their rabbi, where the wife reported her side of the story. The rabbi responded, "You're right." The husband then defended himself and presented a completely different perspective. The rabbi thought for a moment, then replied, "You're also right." The rabbi's right-hand man quietly pulled him aside, and asked, "Rabbi, how can they both be right?" The rabbi pensively stroked his beard and exclaimed, "You're also right. Some issues are black and white, true or false, right or wrong, but most conflicts between individuals in relationships are none of these. They are shades of gray and matters of opinion, style, or preference. It is rarely productive to discuss these kinds of differences in right-wrong, true-false, or black and white categories. Two people can both be right about some issues." Because there are at least two sides to most stories. In fact, the Talmudic sages had to know over 500 ways to declare some unclean animals clean, even though, according to Jewish law, there was only one ultimate side of the story as to whether the animal was in fact unclean. Husbands and wives can describe the same event so differently that it's hard to believe that they're both describing the same thing. It doesn't matter who is more right when they have an argument. What matters is that couples find a way to live peacefully with their differences. This is David Eskenazi from the Aliyah Network. If you're thinking Aliyah, I invite you to join our dynamic and supportive WhatsApp group. Contact Gabriel for details. Send an email to gabrielradio at gmail dot com. 
Thank you, David. If Aliyah is at all on your mind, you really should join the Aliyah Network on WhatsApp and on Facebook. You can get so much wisdom from those who've made Aliyah before you. So write GabrielRadio at gmail.com and I'll let you know how to connect. And recently I heard something soul-stirring from Jewish influencer Charlie Harari. It's an insight he told me originated with Rabbi Nachman of Breslov and was shared with him from Rabbi Mark Penner. Here's Charlie Harari on The Gabriel Sanders Show. Hi, everybody. I heard about this incredible initiative of people saying Tehillim around the clock, and it's unbelievable. I want to share with you an insight that maybe as you're saying Tehillim, you can think about it and it may be helpful. So I started my life as a corporate lawyer. I worked at a corporate law firm, and in that world, there's a pretty strict hierarchy. So I was a junior associate, and you spend lots of time assisting more senior people. So one case was a negotiation. There was a senior partner that needed the help. It was a small matter, and so they only gave him one junior associate, and that was me. We prepare for this kit, for this negotiation. We go to the room. It's this nice conference room in New York City. And this senior partner is the smoothest silk. I mean, the guy was rocking. Knew everything, contract backwards and forwards. And he was so charismatic. He owned the room. And we had this long negotiation. And there was a couple of open matters, and the day was already getting late. And he, he saw people getting tired. So he goes, listen, let's just pick it up in the morning. I said, no problem. Everyone respected him. So we go back, we're talking on the way, on the walk back from, you know, their firm to our firm. We should do this, we should do that, this, that. There's a couple points left to close the deal. But there were big points. We go back, come to work the next morning, well in advance of when we have to go for the end of the negotiation, and I get a frantic call from his secretary to come see her. I run over and she says to me that he had some kind of, it wasn't a heart attack, but it was something. And he had to go to get it checked out immediately. And so he's not going to be here today. I said, okay, no problem. I said, let's, you want me to postpone it? She goes, no, he, you can't postpone it. He feels you'll lose more than you'll gain. He wants you to negotiate for him. I said, I'm sorry. Like, it sounded like you said he wanted me to negotiate for him. Like, he couldn't have said that. It's like, yeah. I'm like, wait, you understand. I'm here two years. You're cool? Listen, here's what he told me to say. He wants you to go in, and he, she gave me basic instructions. Just say what we went through yesterday, and just say I said so. I was like, okay. <laughs> that does not sound like a good idea, but... Hashem runs the world. So I go to this negotiation. They're like, hey, where's John? Well, he's got this thing. It's not a heart attack. And God, he's okay. But I think they checked out. They're like, oh my God, is he okay? I'm like, sounds like he's fine. They're like, hey, postpone. I'm like, no, he wants us to negotiate. They're like, with who? With me. They're like, oh, okay. So I sit down and I just tried as hard as I could to put as much enthusiasm and effort into the points that we made. And at one point, the partner said, well, who says this? And I said, well, John said it. And the room went quiet. And I said, you know what? John said, he must be right. All right, let's just do that. I'm like, for real? Like, yeah, we were done. We closed out the last points. And I remember walking back and I told the story to a colleague of mine. They said, you know, John's a pretty powerful partner and his word goes a long way in the industry. You probably did as well as you thought you did, but really you were just the mouthpiece of a man much stronger than you. What is the power of Tehillim? I want you to understand that when we say Tehillim, we're not just saying Tehillim. You know, Rinachman says that, you know, David Melech wrote Tehillim with Ruch Kodesh, we know that. Rinachman says that when we recite Tehillim, it's as if David HaMelech himself is saying it with us. That the Ruch HaKodesh is still in the words. When you recite the Tehillim, you are reciting it like as if David HaMelech is saying it. You're reciting it on his behalf. He's reciting it with you. Those aren't just your words. They're David HaMelech's words. And so when you stand before Hashem, and you are putting your effort 
and your energy into words that you want to create protection and light and Yeshua's and Hamas for Kal Yisrael. We're walking up to Hashem. You're walking up to the heavens and you're saying, I got the most senior partner in the world behind me. I got the Melech HaMashiach. I got the Melech Yisrael The words that I have, they're his words. He's saying it with me. So when you say it, realize that, Mishrecha, you are now a shaliach of David HaMelech. And with your energy and your enthusiasm and your kavana and his words, anything can happen. We have so many excellent teachers available to us today. Among them is Rabbi Jonathan Rieti, a master educator and a seasoned dispenser of life hacks for Jewish living and learning. He checks in today with some timely advice on the science of love. Rabbi Rieti. Thank you, Gavriel. And welcome to the science of love. There's probably no other character trait that is as powerful. Actually, in the words of our sages, love Love forces everything out of its way. I think in English, the equivalent is love conquers all. Nothing can stand up to love, whether it's love of a person, a child, one's spouse, or an ideal. People are even willing to destroy their own lives for the sake of the love of their ideal. Love is a very potent character trait, which we really have to understand. Here's where I really want to begin. How can God command me to love? You know, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, how can you command me to love another person, especially if I don't particularly like that person? Right now, I actually hate that person. I've got resentment and bitter feelings towards what they've said or done to me, and yet I'm being commanded to love them. And if we look at the words carefully, they don't really help lend clarity to the subject because when it says love your neighbor as yourself, well, what happens if I hate myself? How much do I have to love you? And what happens if I'm suicidal? How much do I have to love you now? So we have a problem here. What does God mean when he says, I command you to love? Number two, we have another problem. He commands me to love him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm commanded to love God. Well, (laughs) I don't always feel like loving God. If someone just came out of the Holocaust, if someone just lost a loved one, how am I supposed to love God in this grief, in this loss? If it's really God who's behind all this, how do I love him? How can you just command me? Is love really an emotion that I'm being commanded to press this button called love and it just turns on? Or is love a science and not an emotion at all? Love is a choice, a science in the sense that it's a formula, that when I play out that formula, it equals the result we call love. So let's explore this a little deeper. I think we're living in a generation where the word love has become so used, it's become abused. I'll never forget about 16 years old, Walking into school late one morning, Ringo Starr, whose young son, Zach, was quite famous today, actually. He's in and out of rehabs and prisons across America. But at that time, Zach was four years old, and Ringo Starr was dragging his feet out of his bright green Rolls Royce, ruined the Rolls Royce. And I go up to Ringo. He was about four inches shorter on me, and he was wearing high heels and, and platforms. It was in vogue in those days, in the 60s. I go up to Ringo. I say, Ringo, can I have your autograph? And he said two words to me. The second word was off. And the first word contained four letters, and it wasn't love. And he really got me thinking. I mean, here's a guy going, love is all you need, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't know the first thing of decency. Tell me that your career is in your wrist, and that your therapist and your career manager told you you can't keep writing these signatures and autographs. I'll understand. 
But how did he just come off just... You know, I have to say in his defense that recently he um, went out public apologizing to tens of thousands of fans in the past 40 years for his verbal abuse. And what was his excuse? He was depressed because he was on drugs or he was on controlled drugs because he was depressed. You know what? Where are we supposed to go for clarity on the word love where it's been so popularized that we use the word love for my dog and for my mother and hopefully it's not the same love no that's arguable no so we use love in so many different contexts food sports culture art parents children spouse pets that is it possible that instead of it being an endearing word it starts to lose its preciousness so let's try to understand what does god mean by commanding me to love other people well if he says i am commanded to love them like i love myself what am i really first being told to do i have to love me what does it mean to love though we need a definition so let's explore this a little deeper and come out with a working definition what is it that i mean when i say i love your clothes that's image i love your car when people love us for our money, our status, our social status, that's not love that's intrinsic. That's not internal love. That's external. It's still a love, but it's not really real. Let's go a little bit deeper. When someone says, I love you for your kind-heartedness, ooh, we're getting a little bit closer. That's something that's internal. So when a person identifies something that's external about me, my fame, I'm a famous actor, or film star, or rock and roll star, or a sports star. They're identifying a talent that I have exhibited externally, but they haven't really got in touch with me. That perhaps helps explain why so many actors and actresses are so unhappy and in and out of love because they don't really know who they really are. Because who do you and I relate to when we see Tom Cruise in a restaurant? How would we respond to the guy say, oh, look, there's Tom Cruise. Or, oh, my gosh, that's Tom Cruise. I can't believe I'm seeing it in real life. Oh, my gosh, you do really do your own stunts. You're amazing. I saw Mission Impossible. You're great. You know, how do we relate to these people as real people or the person they are on screen? In fact, this is the only profession in world history. Actors and actresses is the only profession in world history where they get so many accolades and recognition for who they are. Not. They are not real people. And it's no wonder they're so confused the rest of the time. Real love is not about my talent outwardly. It's not about my body shape. It's not even about my physical or financial status. My real love is when I identify internal qualities and virtues that are intrinsic to your character. Let's simplify this even more. Love is acknowledgement of virtue. Love is acknowledgement of qualities that are intrinsic to you. It's true that I love your jeans or your wardrobe or your shape or your financial status. You can say that's a love because I'm recognizing a virtue. But if I ask myself, what virtues do I need in a, any love relationship in order for this relationship to be a long-standing loving relationship? We need the deeper internal virtues that are intrinsic to real relationships. So when we talk of generosity, kindness, admitting my mistakes, forgiveness, happiness appreciation, gratitude, respect, sensitivity, empathy. Oh my gosh, these are real measures of a human being. That when we notice these qualities in another person and verbalize them to them, that's when that person will feel loved by us on a much deeper level. Now we understand what God means. When he says, I command you to love others, he's really saying, I'm commanding you to look for the virtues that are already there. 
that will cause you to love them. Look for the reasons that will cause you to love this person, spouse, child. And if I don't find any, the problem isn't in the object, the child. The problem is in me that I haven't learned how to search for gold because it's already there. Because God says, like you love yourself. Just like I will find virtue in myself. And if I don't, I have to find those virtues. I'm being commanded to look for the reasons that will cause me to love me. Because that's preparation and it will help me train in finding the reasons that will cause me to love you. When God says he wants us to love him, he means look for the reasons that will cause me to love him. Look for the virtues, the blessings that he does on a daily basis. When was the last time you got an oxygen bill? When was the last time you got a gravity bill? Oh my gosh! You know what? It's bad enough real estate taxes, but imagine you had to pay for oxygen and rainfall. God's blessings are all around us all the time. And God commands me to notice the reasons that will cause me to acknowledge his goodness, his kindness, his blessings in my life that will equal what we call love. Love is acknowledgement of virtue in ourselves, in others. And if I want to increase that love, the way to do it is increase my exploration in breadth and depth of the good that's already in myself and those closest to me. This is Jonathan Rietti wishing you health, wealth, wisdom, and happiness. And rounding out today's audio magazine, here's Rabbi David Aaron with his next installment on Making Eye Contact. As a soul, I am an expression, I am an aspect of a super soul, an ultimate soul, the soul of all souls, which we call God. And this is really what Jewish tradition teaches us by giving us ritual. You know, people don't realize how rich ritual really is. And really, what is ritual? A friend of mine once said that spirituality without a discipline is just a hobby. How does one maintain this clarity of mind that I am a soul and I am an individualized expression of the ultimate soul, which is what we call God? Is there a lifestyle that can constantly remind me of who I am and what really matters and what's really important? Is there a lifestyle that reminds me that really my source of joy comes from being in a state of service and that my greatest prayer is God use me? Let me be a vehicle to reveal your wisdom in the world. Let me be a vehicle to reveal your love in the world. I'm not the source of love. I didn't invent love. I didn't instill within people the need for love. I didn't teach people how to recognize love. So the love in your heart and the love in my heart is not our love. It's really God's love that's pouring through us. And if we're really servants of God, then we would serve to be vehicles for God's love in the world and the wisdom in our brains. Is that your wisdom? Is that my wisdom? Did we teach our brains to think? Did wisdom start with us? Will wisdom end with us? No. Wisdom starts with God and wisdom ends with God. But we are a vehicle and we can be an instrument and a tool in service of God's wisdom to bring divine wisdom into the world. So the truth is, unless a person has a daily lifestyle, that is focusing them on what really matters and reminds them constantly what I think is mine is not mine. And really that itself is a delight to know that it's not my life. It's really God's life. And I have a share in that life. It's not my wisdom, but it's God's wisdom. I have a share in that wisdom. And my joy And my incredible opportunity is that I can be a channel, that I can be an instrument, I can be a tool for God's presence into the world. 
what greater gift can I ask for? But unless a person finds that lifestyle, for instance, the Shabbat. Shabbat is an incredible, powerful, transformative day. Because what does Shabbat remind me? Shabbat reminds me that I just work here. I'm not the boss. Imagine a person has a job and the boss closes the factory on Saturday. But the person feels, well, I got a lot of work to do and I don't want to get behind. And I have keys to the uh, office. So they go into work anyways on Saturday. Then they're confusing themselves. They think this is their company. They think that this is their work and that they're responsible to finish this work at a time when they want to finish this work. That's totally confusing. If the boss closes the office, then the boss doesn't want you to work. So what does Shabbat remind us? Shabbat reminds us that I'm just an employee here. I'm not the boss. Now that brings incredible sense of relief relaxation. So many people have the world on their shoulders. They don't have to put the world on their shoulders. God carries the world on their shoulders, and we're just here to do our work. When a person has that attitude, that is incredible empowerment. In fact, the Shabbat is referred to as a source of much blessing, because really every week I have to remind myself that this is not my factory, right? I don't own this world, and this is not my life. Right? This is God's life, and he gives me a share in this life, and he has employed me as his agent to be a vehicle, a tool for the expression of his life in the world. And so if I can't stop on Saturday, on Shabbat, and let go and let God, then somehow I've confused myself to think that I'm self-employed, I'm self-contained, I am an independent but I'm not an independent. So Shabbat is just one example of a spiritual technology that empowers me to realize my connectivity to God. The challenge that many people have with, uh, with the Torah, with the commandments, is this feeling like that their sense of my life is being taken away. There is the um, teachings of uh, Nietzsche again, Nietzsche said there's two types of people in the world. There are strong people and there are weak people. Strong people do what they want, when they want, where they want. They're strong. But the weak people, they are weak, but they were smart. And they invented morality to make the strong people feel guilty that they're so strong. And who were the weak people? The Jews. And who continued this plot? The Christians, so Nietzsche says. The truth is that, yes, it is true that when a person accepts the commandments in their lives, then that is really reminding them that this is not your life. And that is actually a joy to realize. Because if this is my life, then it's really small. It's maybe 70, 80, 90 years, 100 years. But when I realize that the life I'm living is not mine, but it's really God's, and that I am really an instrument for a greater life that seeks to be expressed through me, which is God's life, that does not diminish my life. That only intensifies my existence. That does not make me feel servile, but that empowers me to feel part of something much greater than myself. My thanks today to Rabbi Aaron, Rabbi Rietti, Charlie Harari, and Dr. Lisa Aiken for their contributions to our program, all designed to provide you a positive focus for higher-powered Jewish living and learning. Thanks as well to Aaron Rochelle for her voiceover artistry, Audionautics for our intro-outro themes, and executive producer Zeb Brenner for bringing us back to you on the TalkLine Network. Till next week, this is Gabrielle sending you a bracha from Jerusalem that you should discover Hashem's best for you and yours, always. Kol Tuf.
This program showcases people, organizations, and opportunities for making a difference. Tune in next week for another freshly baked edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. You can reach Gabrielle at GabrielleRadio at gmail.com. That's G-A-V-R-I-E-L radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.